I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. This episode is dedicated to the memory of Seth Kunin, the Santa Barbara winemaker who died earlier this year. Please raise a toast to Seth the next time you're drinking a wine that's really great. He'd like that. Patrick Kamiski of American Roan on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm well. Thanks for having me. Very nice to have you here. So you wrote a book on American wineries working with Roan grape varieties in the United States, specifically often in California. And you worked in restaurants in California yourself, and so you have a little bit of a experience serving those wines somewhat earlier in your career. I worked at a restaurant called 42 Degrees in San Francisco, and we devoted ourselves to the Mediterranean latitudes for food, and it made sense for us to explore Provence and Rhone wines. Eventually, American Rhone producers worked their way into the wine list, and um, I ended up getting to know quite a lot of them as well. Who was coming by the restaurant back in those days? Well, the very first one that I remember is John Albin. John would come to the restaurant to give staff tastings, but many of the local producers also came and were regular customers, like Steve Edmonds, for example. Randall Graham lived not far off, and so he was a regular, as was Sean Thackeray. This is the period, it starts in about the middle 90s, and it's the period where things are finally coalescing. What were some of the reactions you were getting from customers when you would open and serve these wines? Well, this was San Francisco in the middle 90s, too. And the Bay Area at the time was really kind of at the head of the anything goes when the market really was starting to explode. It, was, it starts to explode in the middle 80s or thereabouts, but in restaurants, it starts to expand dramatically. It's the time in which you see Rhone Valley wines coming out in force. They're being pushed and promoted and given astronomical scores by Robert Parker and so forth. Um, Robert Parker's initial history with Jean-Louis Chauve's wines is one of the great sort of launch pads for Hermitage wines, for example, and Saint-Joseph on its heels. People start getting interested in those wines and eventually Chateauneuf. And then it's very easy for the sommelier community to make a lateral move to California, to Washington, and so forth. Probably also because they were varietally labeled, whereas some of the French examples weren't. So maybe even more acceptable to a clientele that's coming out of the Cab Merlot Chardonnay varietally labeled ethos. I think that's helpful too. I'm reminded of a story where a Rhone producer named Steve Beckman, he had Chardonnay and Cabernet both in the ground when he purchased a parcel of his vineyard land. And, um, very soon, he got sick of making those wines, and very soon, we got sick of drinking them. And sure enough, a couple of vintages later, he had assembled, purchased fruit, Syrah, and white blend that my staff and myself went crazy for. You could almost see the relief on his face that he had finally found his element, that he didn't have to rely on someone else's discipline to express himself. And that was a great moment. And it's kind of typical of what was happening then. The Rhone movement amounted to an opportunity for winemakers to make something that didn't really amount to an establishment vibe. And they could sort of do their own thing, 
They could frequently blend, which is, of course, a tradition in the Rhone Valley. They could experiment with things like rosé, which at the time, it's hard to believe, were virtually not drunk at all in California. And they got to really stretch their wings and feel as creative as they were. You make a point in a book that one of the appeals of their wines to people who were drinking them, especially in California, was kind of an anti-establishment vibe. Like I think of Thackeray, for example, as someone who said, hey, you know, people really gravitated to this guy, partly because of the wines, but partly because he just sort of fit in with the mindset of the anti-establishment. Absolutely. And I think that is really what informed his going into wine in the first place, he told me explicitly is if no one was planting Merlot and I made a great Merlot, I would have become a Merlot producer. But as it happens, I mean, he stumbled on some of the great older preserved vineyards that had Rhone varieties in the soil. And so he was really one of their great vectors in the early going. And actually the book itself, originally you didn't plan it to be so much of a history as it turned out to be. I mean, that was sort of an evolution for you as well, right? Absolutely. When the University of California Press and I first started discussing this work, we had in mind a book that they had recently published, Pinot Noir by John Winthrop Hager, a very good, very comprehensive book, but dominated in, in many respects by the notion of its being a guidebook. And as you probably know, guidebooks are something of a dime a dozen in, in the literature. And um, that's fine. They have their purpose. Um, there's an inherent problem in that they're almost instantly obsolete the moment they hit the shelves. But beyond that, it seemed like a good way to go. And it seemed like a good opportunity to tell people who were the pioneers, who are the up-and-comers, who is uh, on the cutting edge, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I got about eight or nine or 10 months into that project when I realized two things. First of all, I was getting a little bored. Uh, secondly, I was uncovering a huge trove of history that I didn't know existed about all of these varieties. And what I learned initially that I couldn't have believed was that not just Syrah, but many of these varieties were in California soil in the middle of the 19th century. And no one had told that story. And so that was really where I had to kind of rejigger the entire focus of the book to have that be kind of the linchpin of how this whole thing got to be organized. So then it went from being a guidebook to being a straight history and a modern history as well. So kind of fleshing that out some, what would be the history of a grape variety like Syrah? Syrah finds its way into California soil in the early 1870s, and we think it was at Dunfillian Vineyard in what is now known as the Bennett Valley in Sonoma. The guy who brought it in was a man named J.H. Drummond. And as I understand it, his brother was a partner, and his brother was the guy who was doing the foraging in France. And he would ship or transport a number of cuttings to this Dunfillian vineyard in Sonoma, where his brother sold them. He sold cuttings. He had a, a substantial vineyard. Syrah. Grenache, Trousseau, those were all sold and propagated. And that's how the Syrah grape, for example, finds its way into the Napa Valley. It finds its way down to the Livermore Valley, where there was a, a lot of uh, early vineyard development as well. Post-gold rush, there is a, something of a vine rush. And there are plantings done willy-nilly all over the state in the Central Valley on the coastal vineyards. It is all generated by French, Italian, and Portuguese immigrants, many of whom came here for gold and quickly abandoned that notion because it was not panning out. Many of them ended up, many of the French ended up in a region just southeast of what is now San Jose, the Santa Clara Valley, and that's where a number of the early nurseries originated. That's where we think Grenache, Mataro, and Senso all found California soil for the first time. As I mentioned, Syrah, I don't believe they brought in Syrah, but part of the reason that some of the older vine Grenache that was found in the 20th century was found in the Santa Clara Valley is probably because that's where it originated and it didn't travel much. So at some point or another, uh, what the academics of the University of California um, Davis hadn't been founded yet, but they were all situated at Berkeley. Uh, they decided to kind of make some sense out of the chaos. 
what has come in from sources in the old world. This takes an enormous amount of time, but more importantly, they document the hell out of this effort. Every year, there is an agricultural report that is hundreds of pages long where they're sampling fruit, they are making wine, they're actually making their own wines and evaluating the quality of the grapes before, during, and after winemaking. Um, they are remarkably detailed. These are hundreds of pages because every single wine is evaluated. And each of the Rhone varieties, with one exception, gets a fairly thoroughgoing evaluation. Roughly from 1884, almost until the advent of Prohibition. So it's really a broken history in the sense that there was all of this happening, and then Prohibition comes and sort of resets. It's kind of like a tsunami that just Completely. takes over the landscape. Completely destroys it. On the other hand, there's, there are a lot of interesting developments vis-a-vis Rhone varieties during Prohibition for a couple of reasons. Um, the first is that there's an enormous loophole in the Volstead Act that allows people to make wine in their homes. And it's not an insignificant amount. It's close to, if I recall right, 190 gallons or something like that. It's an enormous amount. And that sustains a vineyard culture and a wine-growing culture for the first several years of Prohibition, as there is demand for grapes on the East Coast in every major city. And there's an enormous demand for it in places like San Francisco and its outlying areas. And the advantage San Francisco had, obviously, to these others is that it did not rely on grapes that had to be so durable as to get across the country on a train in a box. So they had slightly higher quality standards and the ability to preserve vineyards that contained a great deal of Rhone material. Mataro was preserved in large part because of that. Carignan was preserved in large part because of that. Uh, the rise of Petitza Raw begins during the Prohibition period because it is so durable to transport, much more so than Syrah, it turns out. Rome grape varieties left an era of lab analysis and long-form reporting about the different wines and characters of the grape varieties and moved into something that was much more scattershot, much more homebrew, much more of an oral tradition. And how does that end up affecting the post-prohibition time? Well, it's like what Paul Draper has said many times over, and that is that the vineyards that survive prohibition are the ones that were worth saving. And it is a simple axiom, but it, it really is true. But what was inside those vineyards is really the interesting thing. Um, most of those vineyards are given over to Zinfandel. Zinfandel was kind of the dominant and the most durable culturally of all of the, the red grape varieties for California out of Prohibition. But within Zinfandel vineyards, there were always other varieties planted. If it was a cold vintage, Zinfandel wouldn't ripen properly, but you could probably get something like Grenache and Mataro to ripen better and so on and so forth. So you always had a kind of balance that arose from the mixed black vineyards. Within those vineyards, you find some very unusual things, and that's really where some of the Rhone varieties survive kind of in plain sight, even though everybody thought that they were a modern phenomenon. In fact, uh, the oldest Syrah vineyard probably to this day, um, although it is, it is really hard to say for sure, but the oldest one that's documented is from the early 19-teens in the McDowell Valley in Mendocino County, which was originally called the Buckland Vineyard. And it was rediscovered by its new owners, the Keene family, who purchased it, I want to say, in the early 80s. And they didn't know what they had. They had no idea. Uh, they knew it looked weird. They knew it was unusual. They assumed it was something like Petit Syrah. But the winemaker that they hired didn't have enough experience to really say. So he hired a great ampelographer. He had Lucy Morton come and take samples of a number of the varieties that were in this old vineyard. And they found not just Petit Syrah, but they found a pretty sizable quantity of Syrah vines, as well as Grenache, Alicante Boucher, and and they had just enough Syrah so that they could actually vinify it on its own. I think George would tend to put a tiny bit of Petit Syrah into it for color, but it amounts to being the, uh, the newest old vine Syrah that had been introduced in California. 
It was a very good wine from the get-go, but more importantly, it really did capture people's imagination. So by the mid-70s, there's variety labeled Syrah in California that's coming out at a commercial level. Yes. The first commercial Syrah in the modern era is 1974, and it's Joseph Phelps Vineyards. By all accounts, it is a pretty miserable wine. The vineyard that it drew from was in the Napa Valley. It looked on paper like it would have been a good location for Syrah, but it was apparently close to the Napa River. It was a heavy clay-based soil. The vines never really did all that well. They were terribly virused. And Walter Shug, the man who made that wine, told me that it never colored up, that the vines were losing their leaves well before he harvested. And even when he did harvest, it never really got to more than a dark rosé in color. Um, Ten and a half percent alcohol. It just doesn't sound like anything that we know and think of as Syrah. For the next 15 or 20 years, they beat their head against not just this vineyard, but vineyards that they subsequently planted down valley as they tried to kind of get after some of the elusive character of the vine that they loved in French Syrahs. They kept on looking for what they called the pepper. They wanted a wine that was really showing that rotundone aromatic quality, and it eluded them entirely. I am not in a position to critique or query their viticulture, but it seems pretty clear that they were going about it the wrong way. Um, it was not for lack of trying. Interest among American producers and would-be producers originates in simply tasting Rhone wines. Rhone wines were not in front of American consumers until the early 70s. Full stop. There were small numbers of wines being imported by vineyard brands, and Gigal was in the market in the early and mid-70s, but not in any great quantity. They certainly weren't producing in the numbers that they do today, and they were focused entirely on Cote Ruti and Condriu, and as we know, those are tiny appellations, so you just don't get the kind of quantity into the market so that people can taste them. But in the early 70s, Kermit Lynch comes on the scene, and for better or worse, he becomes known for his Rhone portfolio, and Provence, of course. And those wines not only entrance an entire generation of winemakers, they become kind of the vehicle for what I call the Berkeley food renaissance that occurs out of the 60s and through the conduit of Chez Panisse Restaurant. Alice is making very rustic, immediate, approachable food. Their emphasis is on freshness. Their emphasis is on immediacy. Nothing is processed. There are no sauces to speak of outside of maybe a drizzle of olive oil. The herbs are fresh. There's a, an immediacy of flavor for which she needed, wanted and needed wines to accompany. In the meantime, Kermit Lynch started off in Berkeley studying a little bit. He dropped out and he sold purses made from rug scraps. The company was called the Berkeley Bag. Uh, he was able to sell that and parlay that investment for his first couple of trips to France. When some of those wines were released, both in that era and later, they got early support from Parker. Parker doesn't get involved till I believe, 1989. There are a number of wineries established, I want to say about 16 or 17 wineries established and on the ground running, and very few of them have met at this juncture. And Steve Edmonds and John Buchsenstein, who were friendly with each other, said, we should get everybody together. We should have a meeting. We should try and figure out just what on earth we are doing with this category. And so finally, in, in late 1987, they have a meeting in Berkeley, California, at a restaurant called La Limes. They have a, a small meal, they pour each other's wines, and it's the first time that everybody gets together and actually kind of construes themselves as, as an effort that might be organized. And then Steve sends a press release to a number of journalists, and there's only one journalist who responds, and that's Robert Parker. Robert Parker says, please send me the wines. 
And he's the first one to review them, and he's the first one to take them together as a group. So he is very important in sort of establishing their cohesion. It wasn't meant to be a movement, but all of a sudden it started to look very coordinated, and that was one of the reasons. This is a very disparate group of people. Most winemakers are. But in particular, these were people who came out of the gate with a reasonable amount of flamboyance. Um, Not surprisingly, the person that emerges at the front of the charge is Randall Graham. Randall Graham is among the first, if not the first, to make a bona fide Rhone varietal blend in 1984. He calls it Le Cigar Volant. It is based on and inspired by Chateauneuf de Pop blends. It is named Cigar Volant because of a peculiar and obscure edict that was placed by the city council of Chateauneuf de Pop that said that it was illegal for aliens to land their vehicles in the vineyards of Chateauneuf de Pop. That was very helpful because it never happened. This piece of information was discovered by John Livingston Lairmont. And um, Randall pinched it from one of his books and uh, named his wine Cigar Volant. It amounted to being one of the first times ever that I could ever find that humor was involved in the selling of and marketing of wine. Randall ends up doing promotional things that, even when you describe them today, they seem outlandish or irrelevant or just strange or hilarious. He was bringing an energy that every one of the producers in his wake were were following. And before long, the entire category is associated with his irreverence. And that was thrilling. That was a really exciting moment because here was an opportunity that they could seize upon to enforce the notion that wine wasn't something that people had to think about. It was there for immediate pleasure, and it was there to serve your the immediacy of your next meal, and so on. And this was, this was taking us right back to Alice Waters and to the way that California cuisine was, was taking the restaurant culture anyway. It's interesting that you chose to take a historical narrative to this because it's kind of like taking a guidebook to the fish tour. You kind of approached a, an irreverent topic in a way. At least that's how it's been marketed often. The vibe of it was a little looser than the Bordeaux I think that's part of it is like Absolutely. bouncing off the image of the Bordeaux Chateau owner and an ascot being like, no, we're not that we're exactly, you know, and I think it, that evolved now into like, yes, we like farmers with four fingers who have lost one, you know, like it became more of a farmer thing, mm-hmm. but originally it was more like, yeah, we're not the stuffy guys. Exactly right. Exactly right. In fact, in Berkeley, there was a retail store called Trumpet Vine was operated by a guy named Stan Hock, who used to write these total agitprop newsletters that involved that, that very aesthetic. He basically said, you cannot any longer drink these establishment Cabernet and Merlot and Chardonnay wines being made, and you have to go after these radical wines. These are the future. These are kind of, these have the revolutionary fervor that you're looking for. In Europe, I might say Gruner Veltliner was an example of people leaving behind some of the known grape varieties in this country for an imported wine and saying like, oh, no, we're going to do a different, and, it, and quite success, it had its moment, right? It was very successful. I remember in the 90s, a lot of, every sommelier had a Gruner Veltliner on the list. And I think that when you look at a grape variety like Vignet, for example, in this country as a domestic wine, it also went through that, maybe earlier than most, and it agitprop writing. That's kind of the model now. It's like, oh, no, these are the things that are different. But the Rhone thing was one of the first to really do it for domestic wines. It was the first thing that was different. It was the first thing that sort of stepped away from the dominant paradigms. Um, Viognier is a great example, and it's a great story. I make the case in the book that the anything but Chardonnay dictum doesn't exist without Viognier to be the thing that you could point to and say – if you want something different than Chardonnay, this is going to be it, because it couldn't have been more different aromatically. To a certain extent, the California versions tried to ape Chardonnay, but nevertheless, it was such a dramatic shift in style and tone and flavor than Chardonnay at that point in time. I mean, we've got to remember Chardonnay was 
heavy, buttery, high in pH, generally quite thick, and a great deal the same from one brand to the next. Viognier takes you completely out of that element. And the plantings in Viognier, of Viognier in the middle 90s, once it gets established, they blow up like nobody's business. I refer to it as a bit of a tulip craze. It was really a flash in the pan and then ebbed away pretty quickly. But that characteristic also could be said about Syrah, right? Like a lot of people predicted that it was going to be this huge market boom in Syrah from California. And it has a niche or maybe a couple of niches stylistically. Yep. But I think a lot of people publicly even predicted that it was going to be a much bigger thing than what it ended up being in terms of sales. Firstly, the plantings skyrocketed. It went from about 2,000 acres to 10,000 acres in a matter of less than a decade. That is a vast, vast increase without really any notion of where the market is going to absorb that kind of investment. They were making grand assumptions. They were relying a great deal on the narrative spun by Robert Parker and in one important instance, Matt Kramer, uh, who proclaimed in, I think it was 2002, that Syrah was officially the next big thing. He used those words, the next big thing, the grape variety for California. This is three years before the movie Sideways. Right after that is the time when Pinot Noir makes its ascendancy. Now, plantings for Pinot Noir, uh, I don't know the exact figures, but plantings for Pinot Noir at that time were every bit as, as robust and every bit as big. And People were, were hitting the ground hard with Pinot Noir, but all of that really kicked in to high gear after Sideways created a behemoth of the category. A lot of times we think of that as killing Merlot sales, but one of the other things that seems to have killed Merlot sales was that there was a lot of young vine Merlot around. And you're making the point that there was also a lot of young vine Syrah around that was planted on basically market speculation and people... For Merlot, we're trying to fill orders. You know, there was a huge market for it. They were trying to fill that market. They planted a ton more, and then quality went down because they were delivering wine from young vines. Syrah got planted everywhere. And when Syrah got planted everywhere, it came into the wineries in multiple ripenesses, multiple styles, and really not showing any of the definitive character that people went into Syrah to pursue in the first place, certainly the pioneers. Um, Syrah grown in warm places can get progressively simpler and duller and fatter and more characterless. You know, at one point or another, someone was lamenting the stylistic proliferations of Syrah, and he said, God help me, but I think it's starting to resemble Merlot. And that just seemed like as damning a statement about Syrah as you could ever make, because Syrah should be and is championed for its wildness and its weirdness and the way in which it exhibits these exotic, savory flavors that aren't for everyone, admittedly, but are thrilling nevertheless. And um, when it was harvested to ripe and put in to a bottle with some residual sugar still, and they had to add acid because they had bloated the wine. This killed the wildness of the variety and of the category. When we first conceived of the book, neither of us could imagine not having Syrah in the title. As the years went by, that started to seem like not such a good idea. The market for Syrah got very, very soft from about 2005 to, let's say, a couple of years ago, I'm going to be optimistic. Talking about this enormous glut in production that couldn't be met uh, in sales, um, part of it was a kind of stylistic confusion on the part of consumers. Part of it was an aversion toward the funkier aspects of American Syrah. Um, more than anything, I think it has to do with the fact that Syrah was never, ever associated with a place, and it was never linked to the terroir that makes it great. And of course, we have a much better sense of what that is now. But even as it was being developed and being championed by this sort of manic marketing engine like the Rhone Rangers, 
Talking about where it's grown and what it's supposed to taste like was the last thing on anyone's mind. All they cared about was selling bottles and, and creating a very, very fun hype for the product. When they actually had to get serious about it and treat it like something that, that needed to come from a place that needed to ground, literally, the wine, uh, that was too little too late. It does happen. But I also feel like because there were often small parcels of old vines, some of these people were obliged to do more blending across regions. Yeah. And, you know, the first to have done that with great deliberation was Randall. Randall's uh, Le Cigar Volant has always been California-wide appellation, and it's always been a wine that's cobbled together and not made from a place. We've spoken a lot about Syrah, but there's a host of other Rhone grape varieties in California that are in that kind of constellation. Where have some of those grape varieties had evolutions that have differed from Syrah or been somewhat in its wake and affected by what happened to Syrah? What's happened with Mataro and Cinso and Grenache? First of all, Mataro is, is available in older vine form to a lesser degree than you'd expect, but it is still, there is still a tradition of growing the vines. It's still found in mixed black vineyards. Guys like Morgan Twain Peterson and Tegan Pasalacqua are uncovering and maintaining vines of Mavedra. But more importantly, it's being developed and grown by uh, women like Ann Kramer of Shake Ridge Ranch and a Santa Barbara vineyard called Santa Barbara Highlands, which is a very peculiar middle-of-nowhere high-elevation vineyard amongst oil fields in the eastern Santa Barbara County. Um, what you're getting, in effect, with sensitive winemakers like Hardy is a, a kind of renaissance of this variety as they have become more sensitive to its range of flavors. And its range of flavors can range from something that's quite rustic and robust and tannic to something quite delicate, like what some of what Hardy's doing. Delicate, perfumed. It has this beautiful red-fruited aromatics that seems, no matter how ripe it is, to show through beautifully. They're such graceful, interesting wines that it amounts to a renaissance, certainly a stylistic renaissance. Um, Grenache is an interesting case for me. I have always questioned Grenache's sort of intestinal fortitude on California soil. I'm somewhat in the minority of, on that. I've, I know a number of producers that make great Grenache, including Sashi Mormon. Steve Edmonds has made great Grenache over the years. I'm partial to Randall Graham's Grenache. Um, even though it is not a serious wine, it is a wine that is very charming and very pretty. Bob Lindquist happened to pour at a tasting last night a Grenache that also represents a stylistic departure uh, along the lines of what I was saying about Dirty and Rowdy, in which it's a graceful, aromatic, pretty, perfumed Grenache rather than a in-your-face 16.5 alcohol uh, behemoth of a Grenache. California can make wines that are that are pretty in the Grenache category. They can also make wines that are really powerful, but if they are really powerful, they always seem to me, to my palate, to lack the kind of depth or seriousness that may go along with that assertive style of, of wine. If they get to high alcohol and if they get to that kind of level of heady richness, they always seem kind of daft instead of serious when they reach that point. And so um, I'm still waiting to see. So these are grape varieties that both in Europe and also in California have been associated with rosé. We've also seen a, a real change in character in the rosé market in the last five, six, seven years. I wonder where you think that that ebb and flow of rosé as a saleable thing has affected the reds. The first thing that's happened with the rosé market explosion is that producers are pulling back grapes they used to sell and are making rosé from them. I know of two or three or four producers who had regular sources for Mervedra and Grenache, and both of them had been rescinded because the rosé craze. That kind of reflects a theme here. Is it's not just that these varieties can make good rosé, there's a tension that's arisen from whether they want to make something 
frivolous and fun and that they can sell right out of the gate? Or do they want to kind of devote the cerebral energy and the elevage time to making something more serious? And that's amounted to a really interesting... I mean, every every vintage now, people are making that existential decision. They're, they're, or that... I mean, it's a business decision too, obviously. But they're they're really having trouble. It's too easy to make rosé in California, and they want to be challenged, but the market is just begging for more, so they can't say no. And the other thing about these grape varieties is that sometimes when they're translated to California, they're blended in ways that we don't see in the old world. So I think a lot of times with the reds, especially with Syrah, you're seeing it blended sometimes surreptitiously into someone's Pinot or into someone's very popular right now red blend. And so where do you see the role of specific to California blends of these grape varieties? When the early American Rhone producers are starting to explore blends, they don't really know what they're doing. They don't really know why these things go together. They don't have any real clear sense of how to organize their thinking about these blends. And at one point in sort of the late 80s, I think it was 1987, they discover a book by Robert Mayberry called Wines of the Rhone Valley that answers their questions explicitly. He was a professor of journalism based in Grand Haven, Michigan, of all places, who devoted his entire journalistic career to Rhone varietal winemaking in France. He spent every spare moment, all sabbaticals, most summers in France, talking with vignerons, tasting wines more encyclopedically than anyone had, with the possible exception of John Livingston Lermont. And he's clearly the first American to have done so. So just as these American producers are starting to look for answers as to why these things work the way they do, he comes in with explicit answers. His reigning dictum is this, Grenache is the thing that organizes all of the Southern Rhone blends as they appear from France, from Chateauneuf, Chigondas, Vaquera, Ondan. And he says, the problems Grenache bring to the table are the things that all of the blending components ameliorate. So if Grenache is coming in too alcoholic or potential to be oxidative, you bring in Mourvedre and to a lesser extent Syrah to kind of rein in that oxidative character. If too ripe, you bring in something that will brighten up the ripeness like Sanso, for example, and so on and so forth. There is a kind of intricate mosaic that Mayberry makes the case for, and he happens to do it in a really elegant way in most respects. And in many cases, for a whole bunch of cepages, he breaks them down to the percentage. And you know, now that's a somewhat common thing in, in the literature, but back then I don't think it was really done much at all. And so it was really quite explicit. And suddenly, guys like John Buchsenstein and Steve Edmonds, and to a lesser extent, Aaron Jordan, and others finally have a template to use. And so they know, they, they kind of learn blends on the fly. The blends that exist in the current market are A, more opportunistic, and B, quite a bit more cynical. And sometimes they're, frankly, accidental. The origin story for the prisoner is, is quite simple, and now it is a formula. But um, it starts with a stuck fermentation. He starts adding things to kind of work around the problem of that stuck fermentation. And suddenly he finds this wine that is sort of sweet and sort of approachable and a little bit on the dark side in terms of tannin. He probably adds a fair amount of acid to kind of bring it up to some sort of sort of balance, uh, puts a very compelling label on the bottle, and suddenly he's got a runaway hit on his hands that not only sold like crazy, but, um, but he ends up selling the brand for several million dollars. I think that, you know, so people are pursuing blends in the category of the American Rhone in both of these streams with great relish. And there are plenty of serious blenders out there in the world. I mean, whether it's people like Morgan Twain Peterson who are insisting on having a mixed black vineyard create a holistic 
bland and a holistic character, or whether it's someone like Seth Coonan, who I think is a very, very thoughtful winemaker in Santa Barbara County, who is making Central Coast blends, I mean, from casting a very wide net, but nevertheless is is just very sensitive to the project. You mentioned earlier about Vignet, and one of the things that was really interesting to me in your book was how there is so much of a pre-prohibition history for a lot of the red wines, but for Vignet, it's really not the case. It's no. really more of a recent thing. Right. In all of my research, I never saw Viognier tastings or Viognier winemaking in California soil. I saw it mentioned once or twice in the early literature, the early um, reports, but never any plantings. Marsan and Roussan, however, were common, and they weren't the only ones. Claret was common. Grenache Blanc was common. Oh, I thought Grenache Blanc was new. I thought that was with the Haas. It, it was. It was obliterated post-prohibition, but it, it's found in the, early, in the early going. It just wasn't really isolated in any meaningful way. It is isolated when the Peran family and the Haas family combine to form the Tablas Creek Winery in Paso Robles, which is not only a winemaking venture and a vineyard planting, but they vow and promise to the community that they are going to bring in all of the varieties of Chateauneuf de Pop. So 13 varieties, they're actually up to 14 now, I believe, that they import, quarantine, test that are virus-free, and propagate. And one of the things that they brought in that grouping that remains a kind of a surprise in California is Grenache Blanc. Grenache Blanc basically didn't exist post-prohibition in California, but is introduced in the late 80s, early 90s, starts getting bottled and used in blends around that time, and no one really knew what to expect from it. I, my reporting in, in the Southern Rhone, uh, most people refer to it as a rather drab variety that people use as a base for other things that they like to put on or in. But it has a real lovely character in California. And um, I think no one was really expecting that, least of all the Peran family. That was an exciting development. It has quite a bit more acid than Viognier, Marsan, or Roussan. It's used to enliven those varieties and blends frequently. It has this pretty saline and a little bit of lemon character as well in California soil if it's not harvested too late. And no one is really uh, making too many mistakes with Grenache Blanc. They seem to take it for what it is, and they want to come out with it crisp and restrict malolactic and make it something that's kind of zippy and fun and easy to drink. It, I haven't really drunk a complex one, but uh, that doesn't matter because it's really a kind of a successful category at this juncture. What about Marsan and Roussan? Because there, sometimes I get the complexity, but not the successful market category. They're difficult sells. They are difficult, I think, for American consumers to understand to some extent, partly because they have a certain elusive quality. Marsan, just to my palate, just seems kind of distant in California soil. It is broad, it is relatively simple. It has a beautiful quince flavor, but as we know, quince is not a terribly demonstrative fruit character. It is a wine that, that only really shows its face after five, six, seven years of age, and of course, Americans tend not to have a patience for that. Roussan can be thrilling, and I have the sense that American winemakers are intrigued enough by Roussan to really take it seriously, far more so than Viognier, because of its inherent complexity. If you harvest it overripe, it is really dull, and it won't take too many vintages for a winemaker to realize that they really have to be extremely watchful with this variety, and when they do, some great things can result. When we start to talk about Rhone grape varieties, we often are referring to phenolics or texture in some way. You think that texture has something to do with market inhibition or success in the United States. Also, are growers narrowing in on their own technique of maybe using whole cluster? I think most of the Syrah producers that are at the forefront of the category, that are the people who we would call, for better or worse, artisanal producers, are all of them dabbling with whole cluster and are all of them looking to push the savory character of the wine. 
maybe to an extent they're also trying to inject a what you might call a plant spectrum of flavors as opposed to a meat or animal spectrum of flavors and just sort of cut off the more feral nature of Syrah at the past, so to speak. But when you look at the wines of Sashi Mormon, at Stoltman, and especially at Pietro Sassi, his own brand, when you look at the wines of Pax Maley and both of his brands, Windcap and Pax, most of Steve Edmonds' wines to this point are still working that, and especially, not least, Aaron Jordan's. The Fela Syrah wines are frequently among the most assertive and thrilling of the category. Um, all of them unabashedly are using old clusters. All of them have texture in mind when they go into the winery with their fruit. Another one worth mentioning is Greg Harrington of Gramercy Cellars. He also is aggressive with whole cluster. He loves whole cluster. He doesn't use it in all of his wines, but he uses it in his tetecuvées, and, and they are frequently quite thrilling. Um, I think with Merved, we talked about it earlier, but with Merved, it's it's a case where where dialing back is the thing that's that's allowing for the varietal character to reveal itself on California soil. And the same is true somewhat of Grenache, but Grenache, I think, is still an open question. The other thing that's going on that's really fun is that people are no longer afraid to bottle varietal Carignan and varietal Sanso and varietal Cunois. These were kind of goofy cellar door offerings for a lot of people for many years, but now they're kind of finding a niche, and that's partly because people like acid-driven, lighter-bodied red wines in this country, and um, California winemakers are obliging them for the first time. If you were to give me a capsule history of what was important, what happened, and then where we might be going from here, how would you summarize that? It all climbs on the back of Syrah at first. Syrah remains kind of the tentpole of the category. It becomes a challenge for people like Joseph Phelps and Gary Eberly to kind of try and get their heads around this variety that they have fallen in love with from early bottlings that they've tried of Hermitage and Codruti and saint Joseph. It leads them to some folly when it comes to planting, and it leads them to exploring other varieties and pushing them in a number of directions without really having a strong sense of where they ought to be going. At some point, both the French get involved in California soil and producers receive these ore texts like the one I mentioned from Robert Mayberry Wines of the Rhone Valley, and they start to get their head around exactly what they ought to be doing to replicate Rhone practices on California soil. Just after Syrah gets its head start, Viognier becomes the kind of white tenpole variety. And it is planted in a number of places in Napa, in Mount Harlan, in the central coast of California, and made in small quantities and is easily ignored until John Albin comes along. He becomes the kind of spearhead for the interest in Viognier as being something that's a great alternative to Chardonnay. And it becomes a real launchpad for an alternative white varietal movement. These different activities and energies start to coalesce, and, and they come together in a couple of signature festivals and meetings in the late 80s and early 90s. The first is a, an unofficial meeting from a group that ended up calling themselves the Rhone Rangers. And on the other hand, you have this wonderful little festival of Rhone varietals that starts off with the name the Viognier Guild and ends up being called Huspies de Rhone. Now, it's worth mentioning that these are two very different organizations. Rhone Rangers is 100% domestic. Hospice de Rhone has always been an international festival. But somehow, these joint efforts make this not just an American phenomenon, but a global one too, especially Australia, which becomes kind of a, a partner in the effort of getting the word out about these really interesting, somewhat obscure varieties. I think at some point, when the Rhone movement finally gets the wind under its sails, and when the Rhone movement finally has the momentum, it is running side by side with all kinds of other exciting entries into the market. And so 
it loses its momentum in relation to all of the other movements that it inspired. It becomes a kind of spearhead for a number of global movements in our market, and it transforms the marketplace, and it becomes a little bit diminished in terms of its visibility as a result. What do you think either the category or the context of the conversation about the American Rhone is missing? Grouping has sort of led to a kind of cohesion among, among the categories, and everything tends to get lumped together. I think what we're starting to see with fierce individualists like Hardy Wallace and with A Tribute to Grace and other brands like that, people are embracing the diversity that's represented within this group for the first time. And that is really the next evolutionary step here. With Syrah, it's going to be with the stylists that we've mentioned that are really embracing the savory character of the variety instead of the jammy character. With Viognier producers, it's going to be people that block malolactic first and foremost, but also kind of create a wine that is invigorating and not just flabby. And you really have to be actively pursuing a style in order for the category to really thrive and take itself to the next step. With Syrah, you have to think about that sign that in Portland that says, keep Portland weird. I want a sign somewhere, maybe in the Lompoc ghetto, that says, keep Syrah weird. Because it's really important to me that if Syrah loses that individual character, that radical element, that anti-disestablishment vibe to it, you've really killed its soul. And, and I can't really abide by that. There might be a drinkable wine in there somewhere, but I want to drink a wine with soul. And that, that's where it's got to stay. And the part of the reason that the category suffered and became so moribund over the course of the last decade is that there were too many wines that had nothing to say. We've reached a point where every one of these wines has to be definitive. It has to have a distinctiveness independent of every other thing that's on California soil right now. Patrick Kamiski has been actively pursuing the history of Rhone grape varieties in America. Thank you very much for being here today. Thanks very much, Livy. Patrick Kamiski of the book American Rhone. He's also a writer for Wine and Spirits magazine and the LA Times. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.